Hey, Joe. Yes. Uh, so today we're going to talk all about the Mueller report. Mm, nice. Just come down and Welcome we're going to have on guests to talk about this. No, we're not going to do this. We we are not a we are not a timely show. No. Would you we're say not a legal news show? No. Yeah, we're not a we're not a podcast magazine. Now of there are plenty affairs. of podcasts that are doing episodes in the last you know twenty four thirty six hours oh, about absolutely. the Mueller report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, if people are interested in listening to such things, they have a lot of things to choose from. Yeah, they. I mean, you know, where I'm going to go, is I'm going to go to Stephen Bobby's National Security Law podcast. I'm going to listen to the weeds. You know, listen to these things about right. it. But of course, just read the report. That too. You could do that as well. Are you actually recording this? Yeah, I'm recording. Oh, okay. This is this is recording. I thought you were play acting in some way. You know, we we've now been lapped by Brian Fry's podcast several times. <laughs> several times over. I'm that sure guy, he's up to 382. At our least. listeners would probably enjoy his shows. So so uh, check out uh, Ipsy Dixit. And um, but he he records basically four or five episodes a day. So I think to to feel less bad about our um, our slow pace because we are only weekly ish. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to renumber. I'm just going to say this is episode 643. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, I, wor- I worked through, I did go, um, I, I, I had a brief trip into a shame spiral, but I quickly <laughs> exited the shame spiral and thought, and it was well, after. that's because you have other shame spirals to explore, Joe. Correct. That's, right. You can't spend yeah, all can't your time in all one. My time. You can't spend all your time in with one the, <laughs> With the shame spiral associated no. with the Brian Fry Ipsy Dixit podcast <laughs> in all of its 894 episode glory, I can't waste, I, I have too many other things I need to worry about and be shameful about. Hmm. Oh, it, not least of which is my should, dog is trapped outside should, of should the recording room. In? Yes, bring, let, let her into the world, yeah. head, the, the inner sanctum of the world headquarters. I'm going to have to, there we go. Come on. Come on, Darcy. She made more of an appear- more of an appearance in the earlier shows. She did because she used to shake. She used to shake her collar more, and she used to bark more. And now she just snores. I don't know if people can pick up her snoring. <laughs> she, listen, she's a she is a senior citizen now, so some snoring is okay. We are not finished with the mailbag, but we you know this is not a mailbag episode, and we're not no. going to you know so so there are our p- next one might be there's terrific correspondence that is in the mailbag that we didn't get to in our last mailbag, and I don't want people thinking oh my god they just didn't like my no you wrote some great emails and we will yeah. get to those eventually oral argument podcast at gmail dot com that is oral argument podcast at gmail dot com that's how you can get in touch with us and tell us how awful we are or how we don't produce enough shows or yeah. how we produce too many shows or how we don't do this correctly or all the mistakes that we made or how we are either good or horrible people and should seek out other fields or stay on our own. Or, in addition to all those excellent suggestions, a, a simple thank you. Like mm. just writing to say thank you, if that's how you feel. I like your, I like your approach more. I feel like we should have been recording right before we started this, before we came down here. We actually had an oral argument. Where, where, we did. where voices were raised. We, yeah, I agree. Slightly in jest, but we were yelling a little bit. Yes. About uh, articles of impeachment. You were trying to shout me down, dude, and it's not going to work. <laughs> I, I think you were trying to shout me down. And, and hence the fact that we were both raising our voices. Okay, so we're going to stop this now and get our guest on the line mm. to talk about the, the most pressing issue of the day, the, the, thing, the, the topic which is on everyone's mind right now, the efficiency of the common law. Indeed. Okay. Oh, one more thing, Joe. So this, this is from after the show. So there are, t- I notice you're not near your microphone. That is true. <laughs> uh, just to say that, um, uh, that Danny's audio um, kind of cuts in and out a little bit um, and sometimes changes timbre. There's not really anything to do about that. It's, you know, the Skype gods were not, uh, uh, were not exceptionally kind, but it's always listenable and he sounds pretty good. So I just wanted to note that because it's kind of kind of shift a little bit and there's, can't really fix that. Cool. Are you okay with that, Joe? Is totally. that fine? Are you okay? All right, well, let's get on with it. 
Hi, Christian. How are you? Yeah. Hi. How are you? Do you go by Danny or Dan? How do you, how do you want us to call you on this podcast? Danny. Danny. Okay. Okay. So welcome, Danny. Thank you. Danny Sokol, University of Florida. So the the title rethinking, boom right into it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rethinking the efficiency of the common law. So, Joe, let me stop you. Danny, um, I don't know if you've listened to prior episodes of the show, but we are kind of a goofy show. Um, uh, so, uh, so <laughs> I it, disagree. It, it, although Joe does tend to ju- jump right into it sometimes, and I think that's what we're going to do. No, 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 no. I, I have heard it, and, I, and, and actually, the fact that there are what, what I would call wild card elements makes it more interesting. So I, I, I kind of like that. And by kind of, actually, I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are nothing if not wild cards, I think. Mm. Yeah. So, Joe, I, I, won't, I won't... In fact, I, won't. I may or may not have arranged with <laughs> one of Danny's colleagues to run into his office screaming something during our recording session. Oh, that, that, now, that I'm, you've never done before. I may That's, or may not have done that. That sounds unlike you, to be honest. It does sound quite unlike me. Yeah. And yet, wouldn't that be exactly the time to spring that on somebody? No. When everyone's been pacified into believing it could not occur. Um, it, I, I would predict that will not occur. I just, just doesn't, doesn't, seem like, <laughs> doesn't seem like you. So I will, I will delay no longer. I will allow Joe to launch us into mm. substantive discussion of a very important topic. Joe, go. Okay. So I, I like, one thing I really like about the paper is that I, I write in two of the areas you talk about and I teach in three of the areas you talk about, the two I write in and one that I don't write in, but that I have taught. So it, it is in that sense, a really fun personal a thing for me to think about all these different stuff. But of course, you know, m- virtually everyone else who hears this, that won't be true for them. So maybe... now, now that you say that, I realize that the modularity part is something I've written in. So there's, there's a, there's an area of overlap in terms of yeah, scholarship. Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff in and there. Then, so it's really interesting. And, and there's only one substantive area that I think should not exist at all. And that's <laughs> So it's like, it's exactly. kind of a yin and yang for me. Yeah. Um, but Danny, help us understand that. So there's this hypothesis out there or this claim um, about, you know, quote, the efficiency of the common law. So maybe start there by describing it so that our listeners can sort of get what you are rethinking. Like, what is the thinking before you came along and rethought it? Sure. Actually, there, there's the rethinking of what I was rethinking, but then there's even a prior thinking before the, the actual thinking happened. Cool. Um, let me explain. Um, so once upon a time, there was Oliver Wendell Holmes, who in his own language basically said that the common law was superior because judges could kind of figure out through precedent and through, you know, changes uh, that that law could get better. He didn't use the concept of efficiency. And in fact, at the time of the late 1890s, the, the field of economics as a distinct field was just emerging itself. So, so in many ways, Posner, you know, rethinks something that had already existed, and I'm sure he read when he was in law school, Oliver Wendell Holmes, but thought about it through an economic lens, because by that point, economics was a distinct field. And the basic theory was more or less the same, that over time, bad cases would be replaced by good cases. This particular idea that you know, common law was therefore efficient, was, it was a bottom-up approach which is that parties on their own would push to change bad cases and bad being economically inefficient cases to better cases because they would fund litigation, they would be aggressive, and 
you would you would see a shift in law and there wouldn't be some other side that would say, no, 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 we like the inefficient rules and we're going to push back. Uh, so so that change only happened in one direction, which is not to be confused with the band one direction. Part of that mechanism is then people once a, once a rule is a good rule for the for the kind of people who need that rule, they don't need a court to come in and talk to them about it some more. They already know what it is. They like it. It's good. They use it. Um, and they don't need a court's help anymore. So, so it sounds like the, the postulated mechanism is sort of a differential attention. Um, people will focus on the bad ones because those are the ones they still want to change. They need, they need help making that rule better. Correct. And, and again, this was in the early seventies and you could make big claims that were by today's standards, quite coarse and unrefined. Uh, was that overall common law and therefore courts as an institution enjoy some kind of comparative advantage over legislation because common law, as you know, it is somehow evolutionary through adjudication and therefore through precedent because you're only going to change the bad laws. And whereas statutes are, you know, a lot more, uh, you know, captured in time. Now, I think our our knowledge of, of how the statutory regime works is, is much more sophisticated than that. But that was the overall claim, at least initially. But there's another twist. Posner, I think very craftily, said this was merely a positive claim. I think that's a lie. I think it was a normative claim from the beginning. And he finally fessed up to that in a later article. But at least early on, he said, this is a descriptive claim of what the law, in fact, really looks like. Um, and then other people basically ran with it. And you had a series of papers uh, in the mid to late 70s that continued into the early 80s that refined a bit this kind of concept. I think it was probably one of the most important concepts within the economic analysis of law movement at that time. And then people lost interest for any number of reasons. It continued to sort of pervade, but then got picked up again by non-law professors, that is, economists, who, starting in the late 90s, started making all kinds of empirical claims based on certain models that there was an overall superiority across any number of real-world areas um, at, the, at the macro level as to the superiority of common law. So that whether it was about corporate governance or corruption banking or any number of other industries, uh, a series of economists who went by the initials of LLSV, um, except there was sometimes a, yet another co-author who, who didn't get into the, the, the named group. Um, and this continued for probably a decade. And w the reason why that mattered is because all of a sudden the World Bank and IMF started paying attention to this and said, well, if they're right, we need to change loan conditionality for countries to basically change their legal regimes to look more efficient, i.e. more common law-like. Huh. So sometimes ideas matter outside the academy because the political class ultimately gloms onto a certain idea and sort of pushes it forward. And so now we, we can also quibble about that of like, well, if that were the case, why is it that common law developed differently across, let's say, Australia or the UK than it did in the United States, even across certain doctrines. But if you're going to claim, why not claim big? Or as um, we, we learn around Super Bowl time, 
go big or go home. So let me take you back to the Posner thing and ask another question about the mechanism of action. So one, it sounded like one part of the uh, hypothesis was parties would differentially focus on rules that, that, that were bad for them, where bad is a stand in for uh, an understanding of efficiency. But it sounds like another part of the hypothesis might be that the judge involved or the judges involved, when they're given an opportunity to understand how a rule is bad, will pick a better one. Also correct. Um, is, was that part side. of that's the supply? Let me let me try to let me. Was let that me, part of Posner's hypothesis? So so yes. Let let me let me say that Posner at that time, and he since corrected uh, for this, thought that even if judges didn't understand that they were doing something efficient, they were really being guided by efficiency. That it was sort of in the ether. That this is really what motivated judges. They might say that they care about justice, or they might say that they care about any number of other factors. But what they really cared about, uh, in in terms of revealed preferences, was efficiency. So, what one way of uh, for listeners who who are like new to ideas of efficiency and exactly what we're talking about, um, uh, you can just imagine a certain legal regime as having a certain size pie to it, right? Which is all the benefits less the costs. And that's a, just imagine that as a pie. And a rule that is uh, would create greater efficiency will grow the pie. But what parties are concerned about is their slice of the pie. And the kind of a, a simple rational actor model here would suggest that parties will litigate when moving to a new regime leads to their having a bigger slice of pie than they do under the current regime, where that slice is big enough to justify all the transaction costs, you know, the litigation costs and everything of, of trying to move to that to that bigger slice. And I take it that, and this may be more the Priest-Klein model than the, than the Posner model, that um, even if judges have no idea what the overall social consequences of, of a rule is, that in fact people will more often observe an opportunity for a bigger slice of pie when the pie is actually growing. In other words, shrinking pies tend to have fewer slices that get bigger, whereas growing pies tend to have more opportunities for increases in slices. And so um, so if there is a rule which would lead to a bigger pie, you'll have more people who could benefit by moving to that bigger pie and therefore will litigate more often. And so... Because litigation is just a way to get your bigger slice. Right. And so even if a judge's decision is a coin flip, there will be more litigation pushing for bigger pies. And therefore, um, on average, and this is, you know, this is assuming a lot of stuff about just the number of these cases and, and how representative they are, et cetera, et cetera, more litigation will wind up in, in pie, with pie growing results because you have more litigants pushing for pie growing. Um, again, this assumes that there aren't going to be as many opportunities for slice-growing litigation in pie for uh, uh, where that slice-growing would lead to pie shrinking. Does that make sense? I don't know how that fits in with the overall model, but I'm just trying to think of a of a way to explain I, this. I think as an analogy, I think that's a very helpful one. Yes. Uh, the the only thing I would add is um, you, you're right. To, so that the the pie increasing is also helpful because. When Posner says efficiency, what he really means is some kind of allocative efficiency. Right. I mean, so one, one of the issues with, with, um, with a lot of this kind of talk is, one, we're kind of assuming that efficiency, to the extent we think of it as the good, involves the satisfaction of individual preferences. We're assuming that 
that those preferences are stable in the face of rule changes. In other words, that they aren't, I always forget whether it's endogenous or exogenous, but, but the point is that, that changes in the law don't somehow change preferences, right? But are just responsive to preferences or not. Um, and, and in fact, that, that we actually, you know, it, to the extent we want this, that we actually value preference satisfaction over other kinds of other kinds of goods. So that this, in other words, that this pie growing, pie shrinking model is the model that we choose to have of social reality. Right. So all of what you're saying is absolutely correct in terms of limitations to the model, at which point people would throw up their arms and say, no, 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 don't complicate the model. Don't complicate (laughs) the model. So uh, what they really tried to do, I say they, because ultimately Posner was not the only one. There were a number of important contributions, Priest and Klein uh, among them, Paul Rubin, uh, another one, but but a whole series of papers, you know, was try to create a simple model to explain what they thought real world behavior looked like. And the more nuance uh, you throw into a model, the 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 less you're able to explain the world. And that's one of the limitations. Uh, so everything you're saying is absolutely right as to the critique. Uh, you know, because a lot of this, in fact, does lead to endogeneity problems. Now, the reason why I was asking before about the whether a judge consciously aiming toward greater efficiency was part of the hypothesis, and it sounds like it was perhaps at some point in time as to some of the proponents of this theory, but not others, right? The reason why I think that's important is because what I take your rethinking to include is a bigger role for conscious effort on the part of at least some judges in a more top-down fashion. So that's correct. keeping one's eye on the role being played by a, a jurist's conscious efforts to target efficiency along some understanding is like, that's a me- that seems to me to be a big moving piece in the various stories that are being told here about what may or may not be true of the evolution of a body of doctrine. I, I think that's right. So, so the initial theory was definitely uh, bottom up, but one of what I like to think of as, as, as my contribution say, bottom up only works if you have some top down governance, which gets us, I, I think, to a certain extent to uh, architectural governance issues of this particular system. This particular system is a legal system. But immediately, you know, the two of you say, wait a second, this looks a lot like the computer systems that we understand so well, uh, because half the time you're playing through understanding APIs, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so I, I think one interesting thing to explore here then would be how you think the analogy applies to law, like how law is um, can be conceived as modular or not and what benefits that has. Um, also, I'd like to eventually to try to think about the distinction between open source architecture and and object oriented um, programming, which are, you know, can can go hand in hand, but don't necessarily need to. Um, And both seem kind of critical for your story. But I I don't know what you think about that. Sure. Maybe to, to bridge that, one of the issues of rethinking is simply within the economics literature, things that were obvious now were less obvious at the time. So depending on in, in the next 45 years, what time period we're looking at, we either call this network economics or we called it intermediaries or we called it matching, you know, uh, matchmaking or we called it uh, two-sided markets. There was an idea that 
some markets have more than one side. That is, we have a platform. And there's some kind of relationship between how uh, two sides use the platform. And again, there's nothing new to this. It's not like this didn't exist before. Uh, so we can think of, in a, you know, the ancient markets of, say, uh, say of Rome, you know, the, the, you know, you had buyers and you had sellers and, you know, shopping malls, newspapers. Do you want to um, just uh, distinguish uh, what you mean by platforms from what one might take, like, intuitively as middlemen? In a market, are those the same thing, or do you mean something slightly different? It, it, so, so there's a lot of interchangeability that everyone uses their own definition, but in fact, most <laughs> right. of I'd say most of what people are talking about is exactly the same kind of situation. That this is not a bilateral relationship. So, if we take, for example, a, a, a matchmaker, uh, so yente, which actually means gossip. But the character Yente on Fiddler on the Roof, and, and this is where one of the two of you could sing Matchmaker. Uh, <laughs> I, I really you're connecting two different parties to each other, right? There's someone that wants to get married. And there's somebody else that wants to get married. And, you know, you have the platform, which is an individual matchmaker who sits and puts people together. Today, we call that Tinder. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I should note that my wife and I met on a arranged blind date. Um, so it was the old so works out. In fact, it was not tender. Just to be clear, no, 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 yeah. No. yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, uh, you know, de- definitely not. Um, I'll, I'll even make it a little more interesting. So we had a blind date on Valentine's Day. <laughs> when you're not dating, you kind of forget that it's Valentine's Day mm. um, until you wonder why can't I get any restaurant reservations until ten o'clock at night, and then <laughs> you know, and and then you're driving around Washington D.C. literally going restaurant to restaurant, like no, no, we'll sit at the bar, just like we're looking for place to, you know, <laughs> sit down uh, and get to know each other. Uh, but it worked out well because, um, de- you know, dealing with two professors who deal a lot with technology issues, we have three kids, I believe we call this dynamic efficiencies. Mm. <laughs> My wife and I met on Tinder, but it was after we were married, so it was awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. No. Um, that, so, that, that is actually not true. I have to put a disclaimer in here. Yeah, Sometimes I joke. Point. All right. So, so this idea of a platform, someone who uh, you don't you don't have parties dealing directly with one another. You've got some mediating institution that brings them together, helps match up, and perhaps in a way they wouldn't be able to do. So, so let me give maybe a, a tangible example um, of the difference between uh, a traditional bilateral relationship and, and one with some intermediary mediating. Um, I can go directly onto the American Airlines website and buy a ticket. Okay, that's a that's a one-sided transaction, right? Bilateral uh, contract. What makes it more interesting is I go onto a website, let's call it Expedia, where I get to see many different kinds of options for my airline. And it's that intermediary that's connecting us. And to a certain extent, you say, well, doesn't everything look like a two-sided relationship? And of course, the answer is it's on a continuum. Some look much more two-sided than than others. So we might see it with regards to a marketplace. So again, the ancient market of Rome, or frankly, this thing we call Amazon. We could see it with regards to connecting people for for matchmaking, uh, Tinder, or indeed even Facebook or, 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 you know, Snapchat, where it's about growing the size of the network, or it could be where somehow uh, the market works in in other forms. There are a number of different business models for how to grow your two-sided markets or your um, 
platform or, or, or whatever we'll, we'll call it. It also seems to me, Danny, that it's a matter of description, right? That um, w- one way of viewing what's happening is that people are meeting up through an intermediary and the degree of kind of presence of that intermediary in the market may lead you to call it a platform or a middleman, depending on, you know, uh, on how ubiquitous it is and the nature of its services. Another way to describe it, though, is that uh, is to break down the transaction, the ultimate transaction into a number of stages so that each side is uh, is, first of all, in the market for a connector. Right, a middleman. That transaction is made, and then uh, and then that person performs the service, which is putting the two people together. And then a further transaction is made. And so it seems to me like you could understand uh, platforms as kind of staged transactions, or you could model them in your head as, uh, as as true as true platforms. I don't know that that makes much difference, but one one way of seeing um, uh, market dynamics, maybe, and I'm just thinking out loud here, right, is under like Coase's theory of the firm that one thing that United Airlines may be trying to do with its own website is trying to kind of internalize and bring within the firm the, the middleman, but it doesn't really work because um, uh, it's, it's kind of more efficient to externalize that function because you're more likely to attract customer eyeballs when the customers feel like they can shop around. Anyway, it seems like Coase has an explanation of when, when companies will try to you know, take on some of the services of middlemen and when they will leave it to other middlemen in the market. I, I like the explanation. I will just quickly note one other thing, which is that Roche and Tirol, in, uh, at least implicitly in their 2003 paper on two-sided markets, observed the general inapplicability of the Coase theorem as a necessary condition for the existence of the two-sided platform. Later on, I want to say in the Rand uh, paper from 2006, they made that explicit. So Think about it this way. When the Coase theorem holds, individual users are able to engage in some kind of value-maximizing exchange directly. By definition, because you have the intermediary, you don't have that in a two-sided market. I didn't mean the Coase theorem and the problem of social costs. I mean, the, I mean Coase's idea about the theory of the firm. Maybe they're the same idea. Ah, ah okay. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Let me just add one more set of complexity. The way we think about platforms in, say, the law and economics literature looks a bit distinct for how professors of, say, information systems and operations management view platforms, which in itself looks distinct from how professors of, say, strategic management view platforms, or even professors of marketing or finance. Oftentimes, we're talking about very similar, if not the same phenomenon, but each people are framing it slightly differently given their own fields, none of whom actually are familiar with the literature of others. And so merely the way of how you describe it means that you get a lot of insights uh, in, in certain fields, but not others. And, and it's exactly, the typical yeah. problem that you all are aware of, which is that you know we don't have enough people talking across fields together on what are effectively common areas of uh, research interest. So the, I think the two-sided market a phenomenon is inherently interesting. And I think seeing the way that uh, antitrust has begun to deal with it in, in those terms more recently is is quite interesting. W- w- I think, though, the, the part of your paper with which I will confess I had the most difficulty was trying to map a common law litigation onto this two-sided market phenomenon. So can you help me understand? This is the courts as platform idea, right? Yeah, and I just don't... Be, be, and, here, and I'll tell you w- what the source of my difficulty is, and maybe it'll help you uh, help me better, is that it seems to me a profound difference 
between uh, litigation and uh, two-sided markets is in all the two-sided markets uh, we were just talking about, all these different examples, both uh, of the actors want to use the platform, um, like they voluntarily come to the platform to to get their needs met. Litigation is an instance where one person on one side of the platform compels the attendance of the other who doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to suffer an adverse consequence, et cetera. So, so help, me, help me understand why you think it's good to think about the common law as a platform. So I, I, would, I would push back in, in, uh, in a number of areas. So n- number one, there are plenty of platforms where you bring, say, reluctant parties together. A lot of B2B platforms are like that. In, indeed, even a number of businesses with con- and consumer platforms, you, you could say, are bringing reluctant people to or people together who wouldn't necessarily, if they understood it, say, yeah, I want to be part of this platform. For example, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, well no. okay, that's but, not but, that's not the example you have in but, mind. But yeah. but I mean, like if you think about payment systems, uh, and the and sure, what sure. I think is the predominant is... two sided market examples of a newspaper who yes. brings together an advertiser and a reader, right? I mean, maybe yes. readers think, eh, there are all these ads. I'm not. I don't like it as much as I used to because there are too many ads now. Yeah. So at the at the you know at the margin or at the fringe, you could you could see how they're. But but for the most part. Uh, they're like, oh, well, you know, I pay less for this. There are some ads. That's not that's not so bad. And the advertiser thinks, ah, we have readers who will read our ads. That's pretty good. So mostly it's a happy story. Right. So let me push it back another way. Like sometimes people are brought in as a litigant. So, so in many cases, particularly, let's say, business to business, you have a problem. You're looking to solve that problem. You need some kind of intermediary. Sometimes, you you know, ultimately... In many cases, even if seen as adversarial, you're looking for someone to mediate between the two sides, uh, whatever the adjudicator is. So there is some understanding that you you know you don't go and just like with with your pitchforks and axes and just directly mm-hmm. uh, attack them. Okay. That, that would be an episode of. Um, Game of Thrones. <laughs> so it's it's desirable. It, so it is voluntary or desirable in the sense that you know it it it's it may be a second best or a third best, but it's definitely not the 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 least best. I mean, well, it is better than armed violence. That's me, true. The analogy works best for me if you don't necessarily consider it as a single intermediary bringing together two parties who really want to meet each other, but rather think of it as kind of uh, um, a bunch of people who want to have some influence on a platform, on the direction of a platform, and they participate in order to have that influence, and the authoritative voice of that platform takes into account the messages that these different parties send, right? And so it's not so much, like, and especially once you have these models about the evolution of the common law, it's not so much like each case, right? Each case is another instance where someone is basically committing changes to the to the archive, and the authoritative person is, is deciding which changes to accept, Right. To me, that's a like a, a a better model. So it's not, you know, it, it's not not quite like tender in that sense, right? It's not like putting together parties who really want to meet each other. Rather, it's uh, the, kind of the open source model more generally seems applicable here. I don't know what you yeah. think, Dandy. Does that sound right? So, so I, I think that's so. So part of the problem is when you have to frame something as an initial, uh, and so in many ways, I have the same problem as Posner. 
I have to overly simplify a rethinking of an initial thought that may not have been correct. But ultimately, this would have been better off as a book to explain many of the nuances that you're working through. Right. Uh, how do different sorts of platforms work, whether it's a fintech platform, social network slash matchmaking versus some kind of search-based platform or some kind of market-based platform, for example, just to talk about what we've already discussed. And you know, much the way that different platforms and frankly, their quote-unquote business models work differently, different kinds of law with different forms of adjudicators may in fact be just as complex as uh, some of the uh, different kinds of uh, platforms that I just mentioned mm -hmm. uh, in a business context. So I have to also simplify to say, let's imagine just law as a platform because it's a better, in, in part, it's a better metaphor to understanding efficiency of common law. And how does it, and so let's shift to that. How does it help do that? How does conceiving the common law as a platform for people acting out in the world who, who have disputes that get resolved, how does thinking of it that way uh, help us understand the efficiency of the common law hypothesis better? Because it helps us to then make the next leap, which is to say the nature of this platform is that it is both open source and modular, for which you need some top-down, but mostly bottom-up. So it's the combination of top-down and bottom-up, which allows for the quote-unquote efficient outcome. And that's what was missing in the initial Posner et al. idea of the common law, that they just assumed it was bottom-up. In fact, it only works bottom-up if you have some top-down governance, uh, but where you could swap out particular doctrines in an open source type uh, context that looks very much like modular design. And so by thinking of the common law as this two-sided platform, it really highlights or foregrounds the, the okay, where t show me the governance piece and show me the way that the, the organization of the platform, which has a more top-down feel to it, is it gonna shape everything that happens within this platform context. Um, so when you say top down, I push back and say it's both top down and bottom up at the same time. Sure. But the, but the, but the, the provision of a platform by a person who, by an actor who is going to kind of say, here's a stage on which to do these things that has a, that to me at least ha has a particular, uh, top down feel to it. C correct. Correct. So this is where it becomes, uh, so, th and this is where I would bring a different analogy. So ultimately you know, if it was pure top down, I'd say this looks a lot like our um, Apple ecosystem, but I'm actually suggesting that this looks more like our Android ecosystem. There's some top down to set up the basics, but overall, it's the open source aspect which allows for some uh, efficiency to move us in in a particular direction that is really bottom up. So this is where it gets, I think, a lot more interesting in terms of the analogy, um, because I don't so, see... So up until now, it was less interesting, but now we're getting to what... <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, um, because I think the platform, the platform analogy, I think, is more than an analogy. And it's, and it's, um, and it's interesting precisely because of the diversity and complexity of these platforms, which ultimately are solving the same kind of problem. I mean, it's why the original conceit of our show, right, was that we were talking about the the um, software of society, right? That law as the 
software on which society runs or something like that. And it is precisely because um, of the complex nature of production of, com- of complicated software um, that it's analogous because it's human beings trying to solve a very complicated coordination problem that lots of people can live with despite their different goals. And so, for example, in the Apple ecosystem, the, the foundation of the modern operating system across all of their devices is um, open source, right? Is Darwin based on BSD Unix, which is one branch of, of Unix, which went open source. Linux went another direction when they were trying to decide, you know, what future to take the platform in. You know, the kind of Linux versus BSD was, uh, I think it was Avi Tavanian was... Um, did a lot of work on BSD. They went the BSD direction. And then they have a lot of other kind of open source projects, like the Safari is based on KHTML rather than Mozilla. And now famously, you know, that that project is is what it is and has been forked by other companies, including Google, right, to create Chrome. Um, and then there are other, you know, there, and then of course there's the open source sense of the, the open nature of the APIs, right? This is, so we've provided things and provide lots of information about it on which you can build your your products. There are other things that we are not going to disclose, like this software that runs our windowing systems and that um, and and, uh, and and others. So there's like a complex mixture of kind of open source, uh, including the new language Swift, right? Uh, um, is open source and, and is um, but but has this like authoritative structure. When you're trying to create a new pro- programming language, it's absolutely critical that it become that there's a you know a highly canonical way of doing things. Uh, so that you can get, um, so that source is portable, et cetera, et cetera. So Google has a different business model and different purposes, and it has a different mix of what is open and what is closed. Um, so there's a, there's a lot within uh, Google's phones, which is not actually open, but there is there are other things that are not open on Apple's platforms, which are open on Google. And partly that's because, you know, Google is first and foremost an advertising company, um, which provides lots of really valuable services that serve that end. And Apple is primarily... Uh, it's trying to move toward a services company, but it's primarily a hardware company. And so, you know, what I think is super interesting is that these different goals help to explain a lot of the complex structure of kind of openness, cooperation, and closeness that you find in these different companies. And I wonder if there's some lesson, you know, about law in there, the mix of kind of closed source within law, like legislative enactments are kind of open through interpretation, but there's a certain closed offness of, of possibility that they create. Whereas the common law is kind of always open, but then there's stare decisis and, pres- and, and precedent, which, uh, which, um, which close off certain opportunities. So I don't know. So I, I, let, let me take it a step further, which is say some companies to, you know, start off not as platforms, but become platforms. And we might say like, it, it, it might be a traditional statutory regime that all of a sudden opens up and becomes a platform of sorts. So if we look at Amazon back in 1998, when Jeff Bezos was happily married, and um, <laughs> they were just an online bookseller, no different than a traditional bookseller, right? right? Um, they didn't really become a platform until 2001 when they created the marketplace. And so we could think about a number of areas of law, of closed statutory regimes that were not platforms at all, but then become platforms because all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, we have a statutory regime. We need to figure out adjudication to understand the statutory regime. Why don't we create some kind of administrative law system? Um, Or, oh, my God, it looks like we have a whole statutory regime and someone has called into question the constitutionality of that regime. It looks like the courts now have to be brought in. So what was not initially thought as a platform has become a platform. 
Then we get to your question, which is um, open versus closed is complex even when we think of open versus closed systems because each of them have elements uh, that move in one direction relative to the other. I think that's right. Everything is on a continuum as to open versus closed. A, a continuum, but also a complex aggregation of open and closed parts, right? So this is, I guess, yeah. myriological thing, like this, you know, part-whole distinction which comes into it. So, so uh, agreed on that. Um, and in many ways, in, in further work, one could sort of build off of that in terms of law or society having this complexity in it uh, to, to get to these very issues. Um, in, in many ways, my, my initial project was far more modest uh, in, in simply saying we should be thinking about it in this framework in the hope, therefore, that we'd be able to tease out some of these distinctions once, once we've identified that this is the basis of how we think about it. And, and I love the project because I think that that this is um, a very, very helpful analogy. Um, and my own work depends a lot on this being a direct analogy or even something, like I said, more than an analogy. And um, so so if we take it, like, after you establish this kind of platform framework for thinking, like, the last part of the paper really is about the importance of, of kind of goal-centeredness. Like, uh, you know, setting an authoritative goal can help these platforms work better, um, especially so, the, so the, the greater degree like, that they're modular. Yeah, go ahead. The, the really critical thing is could. Just because you set a goal doesn't mean you actually achieve the goal. But if you don't set one at all, then maybe modularity doesn't help you as much, or does it? I don't. I don't yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's 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 right. That's right. I just wanted to make sure that it's not seen as a tautology. Well, you know, the reason why efficiency of common law works is because we set efficiency as the goal. Therefore, it works, and therefore, and so it's more than just that, um, because there are many uh, points along the way that even if you set the goal. It doesn't get internalized either by lower courts uh, or, or, or by subsequent single decision court. So the reason in that last part that I said where it did work was antitrust to a certain extent because, A, they decided on the goal and, B, the Supreme Court, you know, really pushed that goal forward in, in ways that uh, across courts, um that if you wouldn't have had that continuity, it, it wouldn't have worked out that way. So, so as the non-antitrust expert, let me let me try to let me try to say this, and you guys tell me if this is wrong. So, so back in the day, maybe there was more pluralism in ter- in terms of thinking about the goal of the antitrust statutes and antitrust as a general idea. That you know maybe part of it is in, is is enhancing competition, part of it is like supporting the little guy against the big guys, et cetera. But over time, the 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 um the entire focus uh, turns toward consumer welfare. And more broadly toward efficiency. And so once the Supreme Court establishes that as the goal toward which we're marching, then all the different Singular kinds of disputes. Goal. Singular goal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, 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 and so once that's done, then like lots of judges and lots of cases can work to make the different parts of antitrust serve that goal better. And, and, and so changing the law in one area of antitrust, like, doesn't affect the change in another. And so another judge may – so we, we can kind of all work on different parts in the same way that, like, different, um, different software um, – Doesn't affect by itself directly. By itself. Doesn't exi- just by virtue of that fact, it doesn't right. affect that other one. So, so like It'll very, take time like, and people to move it along. Right. So, like, modular code, it's an area where different 
uh, where different modules are delineated so that there's not a lot of coupling. In other words, if I change something over here, it's not going to change what's going on over there in an unexpected way. And therefore, different judges can work on different areas kind of separately, but all move it towards the goal. So if I make the, the law over here a little bit more efficient, um, then I leave it to you to work on this other area of law. And what I've done over here doesn't kind of muck up what you're going to do over there. That's the that's the modular you know, software design idea. And so one question I had is like, is it something about antitrust or is it something about setting a goal that helps with module delineation? Do you know what I mean? Because that seems to be a critical part. I think, I think it's the goal. And I think that the only reason why we see it in antitrust uh, is because some of the very distinctive features in antitrust relative to other areas of law. So, so uh, you know, in, in your area, for example, of property, I think, um, I'm blanking on his name, the, the guy at Notre Dame has talked about the modularity of property law. Well, I mean, this is... Uh, well, that sounds this, like Henry, Henry Smith and Thomas Merrill have written papers on this. Yeah. And, and there are other people who have kind of taken up that mantle. And but, but the basic thing is property law is harder. If you look at Powell on property, the big treatise, the issue is that you have 50 state Supreme Courts, each of whom, even if you had the same goal, each of whom are ultimately designing the implementation of that goal very differently. Antitrust's ability to move the goal forward uh, in, in a way that, that was more consistent with the fact that it's more or less federal law with only one decision maker, the Supreme Court. And that, I think, aided antitrust relative to other fields so, so that you didn't have the fragmentation issue, uh, which, uh, which is in the paper, but we hadn't yet, uh, the three of us, gotten to yet. No, I take it back. You guys did kind of talk about the fragmentation as you were working through some of the open source uh, coding issues. Um, but but that's that's the um, the institutional design of antitrust that made it perhaps unique, uh, or at least gave it certain institutional advantages relative to other fields of law. So if we think about you know antitrust features with respect to you know, other other legal regimes um, and just uh, take a sort of an inventory of uh, you've got a statute that's um, you've got very few uh, authoritative statutory commands written quite a long time ago. So at a time when the style of writing statutes in Congress was, you know, a less is more approach, right? Don't you don't have to say a whole lot. Uh, and you can say it at the level of a standard and leave the courts to implement it. You've got and to, to that point. Um, there were a number of early cases of antitrust about the, the antitrust statute being void for vagueness purposes because no one knew what the hell it meant. You know, <laughs> right? It is exceptionally spare uh, in uh, in laying out uh, these uh, very powerful ideas. I'm, you could probably fit uh, most of what you needed from Section One or, or Section Two of the Sherman Act in a tweet. Um, okay, so you've got an old statute. Same with the First Amendment, by the way. True, you've got an old statute. It, that's uh, written in 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 very spare and general terms. Um, you you have some agencies that do some work, but relative to what we think of as a contemporary model of a very strong administrative agency in U.S. law, like the EPA or the Federal Communications Commission or the Securities and Exchange Commission, you have no agency effectively, right? In antitrust. Uh, uh, the FTC, I suppose, if history had worked out differently, the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, could have tried to do under Section 5 of its organic statute, something akin to modern, strong agency law, but they simply haven't 
ever tried. So, uh, really, so you have you have an old statute, broadly written, no strong agency, which leaves because it's federal law a single court, ultimately as the apex court in the system, the Supreme Court of the United States, to try to make something work in this legal system. Now, if we look at other things that look like that, federal law, old, not very wordy not a strong agency. It's interesting. Patent law is the other candidate, I think, that would fit the bill pretty well. Uh, copyright and trademark arguably also. Um, no strong agency, old statutes, generally worded, a single apex court that's there to try to make the system work. Well, so that's where I'll push back on the single apex court because um, there, there's, shall we say, a secondary apex predator that thinks it's that, that it's that that it's king of the hill, and that's called uh, the federal circuit. And so, as you know, there have been battles as between the Supreme Court and the federal circuit, largely because at first the Supreme Court just didn't didn't bother to care about patents, and so the federal circuit basically, you know, you might call it pretender to the throne, or you might call it something else. You know, had a certain amount of dominance, and and even now the Supreme Court has pushed in some pushback in some areas in patent law, but it still really left a lot of substantive patent law to, to the uh, oversight, really, of the federal circuit, uh, which I think is unlike a lot of other areas of law, uh, where the Supreme Court is willing to take cases on a more regular basis to refine exactly how much control some other institution, whether uh, federal agency or other form of court like the tax court might have. Yeah, I think that's largely right. I, I do. I, I would argue um, at, at the maybe uh, with some of the details, uh, you know, for example, the if you look at the three year rolling average of the number of patent cases at the Supreme Court, they're back up to a level they haven't been at since the 1940s. So um, it, it is um, uh, at, and at a time when they're hearing fewer cases overall certainly many fewer cases overall than they heard in the 1940s, meaning the percentage is even bigger uh, from that point of view. But, but uh, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're right. The federal circuit um, uh, definitely plays a, a singular role in patent law that there isn't a similar circuit court playing a singular role in antitrust or any other body of federal law. Now, is it a case of, you know, the Lhasa Apso or Shih Tzu who thinks it's a, a German shepherd on the inside? And behaviorally acts that way, but really isn't, um, or is it a mast uh, like a mastiff that is actually fierce, uh, not only on the inside but on the outside? Uh, uh, I suppose time fierce. me for the dis- difference between whether John Starks really thought he was Patrick Ewing versus <laughs> whether Akim Olajuwon really was Akim Olajuwon yeah. to, to make this '90s relevant. Are, <laughs> are those are those uh, basketball players? Who got me? Yes, I have no well, idea. Tired, but yes, they were. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought I recognized the names. I was simply making. I mean, to go back to the larger point, um, I think antitrust, for the reasons you describe, it is it is um, singular. Uh, but there are some things that are pretty close by that have some contrasting differences, but that are, and, and of course you talk about patent law in the paper as another area of law that, you know, has it been moving toward an efficiency goal or not, uh, and the degree to which it, it has or hasn't relative to antitrust, which I take it you think is of as the strongest example of the courts moving a common law body of doctrine in the direction of efficiency. You mean antitrust? 
Ant- antitrust is the example of the one that's the most, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. okay. The, the other one that, that, that looks more towards an efficiency model, but with a different structure, is Delaware corporate law, because you have a Delaware Supreme Court that oversees the Delaware Chancery Court, so it's a highly specialized court. Uh, many of who the, ch- the the really good chancellors, you know, get kicked upstairs, mm. but it's all done in the shadow of if they push too far in one direction or the other, they um, they might lose out to other states, or in the alternative, there might be federal intervention, as for example, there was for Sarbanes Oxley, where they think that Delaware law has gone too far in one direction or the other. I think I think that law, the corporate law, is the most interesting example here because that's it, just, it, it, is awesome <laughs> and everything that can somehow relate to one of your other colleagues is worthwhile that's true and, but, and, and uh, Chris Brewer as well um so so wonderful people wonderful colleagues brilliant scholars um but they don't have a podcast so let's not talk about them let's talk about <laughs> no th- that's all true but but what i meant was that um corporate law is more like um, selecting as a as a corporation, the state of incorporation is more like choosing a phone in a marketplace than other areas of law. So you know it's hard to opt out of antitrust law and to shop around. It's even harder. It, it, it's it's hard even though possible to like choose the tort law I'm subject to um, because I have to move or something else in order to opt in. But you know incorporation is is much more uh, of a, of an optional kind of thing. And so maybe that would be an area where you would expect to see platforms competing on values. Um, and uh, and uh, conforming to like uh, plurality in, in consumer preferences in the same way you can take like Android and, and iOS as examples where, you know, one approach to like what's the best phone to get would be, well, it's going to be basically the cheapest phone and the one which is um, uh, provides like certain kinds of integration. Um, and, and that's going to be one which is, which is subsidized by advertising. And But other people may say, no, it's like the best integration of hardware and software that best protects my privacy, in which case you choose iOS. And so, so you know, there, there can be different values, but there can be different ideas about what makes a good phone or a good computing platform that drive you to choose different companies and different companies organize to, um, uh, themselves and, and their internal structure of production in order to meet those goals. And so it seems to me corporate law would be a really good kind of test for whether these different platforms arise to serve these different values and how well they serve these different values uh, to the extent that they can consolidate on them. But but I guess maybe the analogy breaks down to the extent that, I don't know, suppose Alabama wanted to be the home of like um, uh, employee rights-based uh, corporate law rather than shareholder, shareholder value. Um, that would require kind of that state to consolidate around that value in a way similar to what you say Delaware has done with respect to shareholder wealth maximization. And I don't know if that's happened or not, but um, it would seem if that area of law isn't the right one, maybe there are others that are, but um, but it seems to me corporate law is the, is the best test because it's like one of the only areas I can think of where kind of opting into this or that body of law is like, seems like truly optional. I, I think that's right. Um, and so, so it's optional and yet at the same time, it's not optional. Uh, because you're assuming that there isn't a certain amount of path dependency, much like with your phones. Um, you know, part of, you know, part of the reason why you choose a particular carrier is the network effects and the strength of the network and the reliability of the network. Um, some people are going to be more price sensitive and they'll go with some kind of low cost providers, but if the stakes are higher and you have the money to spend, 
um, you're going to go with one of the more established networks. Sometimes some combination of price and quality leads to changes as to the overall desirability of a network. But in, in, a, in, in many ways, phones is exactly the right analogy. Corporate law is harder because you have to build up that base for the network, and, and it, it takes quite some time you know, to flip from one network to another. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, to take this analogy further, we're essentially looking for the T-Mobile, the disruptor within uh, the different telephone providers, and which state would basically take that mantle and say, we value some kind of, let's say, broadly speaking, uh, corporate social responsibility, which, by the way, is just as complex as to its meaning as what we mean when we say platform. Yeah. And and maybe there's a market for that. Um, and, and there are both reasons for and against why we, we would see that disruption work or, or not work. I think I think that's right. And, and you think if a, if a state decided, say, say Alabama to deci- decided to be the home for corporate well, responsibility. Well, of the states, Alabama would probably not be the well, one I, I would think would I, be pushing corporate I am, social I am, responsibility. I am making no judgments about, uh, about any state's politics. And so I'm just picking. Let, let, let's call it, it California. Okay, we, we could. To give them a big chance. Alabama, no, 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 ju- Alabama just seems simpler because there are fewer people and, you know, and, and California is, um, well, it's a big state with lots of complexity. <laughs> uh, and, no, 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 no. That's exactly the reason yeah. why I say California, because California has some real market power. Uh, e- even now, California says we would like to have California companies, unclear what that means, by the way, um, you know, have uh, diversity requirements for members of the board of directors. I'd say they are pushing a corporate social responsibility aspect. Well, my question was going to be, my question was going to be, suppose that, that a state wanted to create a social responsibility platform as an alternative to the wealth maxim- the shareholder wealth maximization platform, if you associate that with Delaware. So, so part of your paper argues that by choosing wealth maxim- shareholder wealth maximization as, the, as a singular goal, it kind of, it, it, it eases the modular delineation costs of the different areas of law. And that's what leads to kind of this, uh, you know, modular building up of the platform serving that goal. And I'm wondering if something like corporate responsi- social responsibility would serve, in other words, is there, is there a substantive constraint on the ability of a singular goal to create a modular platform? Or is there something special about wealth maximization that makes that possible? No, I don't think it's necessarily wealth maximization. It's some kind of basic consensus as to what we mean. But so we could we could really tease out like, well, are we talking about static or or dynamic wealth maximization? Um, what is it that we sort of think about uh, that, that within wealth that we're really trying to maximize? There, there are certain aspects and certain ways of measuring it. Um, but, but to the extent that we have some consensus, so if we were to have some consensus as to what does CSR mean, I think that that is another potential singular goal that could rival the efficiency goal, so long as it's not too indeterminate. Well, but, but, do you dis, but do you see a distinction between delineation costs and design costs so that if we choose shareholder wealth maximization as the goal – um, that now we're, you know, we, we want to see all areas of law move toward that goal and overall law to serve that goal. And the question is, um, having chosen that goal, how expensive is it or how well can we do at delineating the modules in which we're going to push this forward? And then once we're within a module, once we've identified a specific area of law, how expensive is it to decide which approach will best serve that goal? And so those seem to me two different things. And, uh, and I can easily see how a nebulous goal will make it harder on the design front 
to once you've chosen an area of law to figure out like which rule will best serve that goal. And it seems to me that wealth maximization or shareholder wealth maximization is kind of easier than like, you know, some some broader concept of morality to the community as a whole. And by easier, you just mean less nebulous, less nebulous. In other words, yeah, but there's less conflict about it. You know, it, once we've decided on that goal and that's in the books, it'll be harder to win future lawsuits challenging so, that approach. But so what any about the goal that was similarly uh, coherent and consistent and non nebulous about which there was that degree of consensus, wouldn't it function similarly? It, it, yes, I, but I'm wondering if that's the only way. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not committed to the idea that, that design costs are, um, are, are necessarily you know, welded to singularity and ease of apprehension. Maybe, probably, but I haven't really thought about it. But what I'm curious about is whether the delineation costs of the modules, which seems critical to your story, is also sensitive to that kind of predictability and definition, the degree of definiteness of the of the goal. Right. So I think, at least in antitrust, for the most part, the doctrines are distinct. So that the the cost of changing particular doctrines is relatively no, because we know how the system works. In areas where there's some mushiness as to the doctrine. Those kind of costs, I think, would be real costs. Yeah. So, is delineation a function of the of the social problem or of the goal? So, so in other words, antitrust. We what can are say, you calling delineation again? Delineation is like figuring out. Well, this class of cases needs this. You know, it's it's the definition of the class of cases which will be served by a legal rule. Okay. Right. So, and you know, when you teach antitrust, I imagine you have a syllabus which has, you know, now we're going to talk about this category of cases, next this category of cases, and there's a, there's a certain kind of notion of what the areas of antitrust are, right? And that's a delineation of the discrete problems. And in order for this modularity hypothesis to work, what you need to be able to show is that those aren't necessarily coupled, and people can work independently toward efficiency on each of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. And so. The ability of, of, of that area of law to kind of grow the pie in a global social sense depends on that delineation and the ability to design law within each module that actually increase the size of the pie, right? That increases the size of the pie. So it's like these delineation and design, I'm calling it design costs, or, or you can you talk about like rule definition costs or litigation costs, right? And I get how a singular, more kind of empirically um, uh, um, graspable law, uh, um, problem will, um, will reduce that kind of decision cost and design cost. But I'm wondering whether delineation is a property of the area of law or, of the goal, or whether it's sensitive to the goal that we choose. So, you know, if we take tort law, right, tort law also is delineated into a bunch of different areas. And I'm wondering if that's a function of tort law or a function of the of the goals that people have for tort law. So if you take a, you know, Goldberg and Sapersky view of tort law rather than say a Posner view of tort law, are you going to would you maybe have a different syllabus? Would you consider cases to be, fall in different categories or is delineation just a function of the area in which case this whole modular um, hypothesis of law is going to depend a lot on the area. In other words, it may work well in some areas of law and not in others just because of the nature of the delineations. I don't know. That's just I'm thinking out loud, but that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Yeah. So it's it's not something until now I had given thought to, though. It's a critical question. I'm glad you raise it. So so the cop out answer, which I actually think is the correct answer. So so forgive me for that. Is <laughs> I think it, it, it is. It depends case yeah. by case yeah. basis. And by case, I literally don't mean an actual legal case, but I mean the particular area of law and the particular goal chosen, I think, are going to play into this. Mm. So, so it's 
Yeah, I, my intuition here, and this is not thinking about it nearly as deeply as you have in in, in these terms, but um, I don't know. I think that was a really good contribution. Well, <laughs> so no, but my my intuition is that um, is that areas of law have uh, that, that there are deep social reasons for the delineations we've chosen that um, kind of set out templates for identifying problems. But that goal choice can influence those in some areas of law more than in others, and maybe anti antitrust is maybe one of those right where if you if you choose solidly one goal, it may lead you to consider classes of cases um at, 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 may may lead you to consider definitions of classes within that topic differently than if you chose some other goal in other words, there might be i i don't know this is just an intuition i have so so i I think that that's i think that that's right um and Maybe this gets even just to the to the last part of the paper where I, I look at the most non-singular goal part of antitrust, actually a long statute, a poorly written statute, um, the Robinson-Patman Act, which is very clear was protectionist in nature. And even there, the Supreme Court, because it figured out what its goal was, said, you know what, we're going to read into, contrary, by the way, to the actual language. Um, and indeed the intent uh, of, of the drafters of the act. We're going to read in an efficiency rationale that didn't exist, and we're going to make it look like these other areas of antitrust law that, that you know, for which we have like literally one or two lines, and we're going to reshape the law in such a way to make it look like those other parts of antitrust law, which are efficiency-based in terms of outcomes and framework and, and understanding. And we're going to rejigger it so that you have to... Um, you know, we, we have to take these doctrines and re- regardless of the cost and just make it look like other parts of antitrust, which you could get away with in antitrust, but I don't think you could get away with in other areas. And even the more bizarre thing about this is that to the extent that you are an originalist, and it's clear that the original intent, you know, unlike the Sherman Act where Bork invents that there was an efficiency rationale where nobody else left or right believes that. Uh, to make it work with his overall originalism idea, there, there's no question. I mean, nobody could believe that there was ever an efficiency uh, aspect to Robinson-Patman. Um, and so if you're an originalist, how can you believe in the development of the efficiency of common law of antitrust, and yet all the originalists vote to make it look more efficiency-based? And I guess in their minds, they must say, well, this is really just another part of antitrust law, which we've already decided originally was to help out consumers. And so this is just kind of an aberration, except, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating question. But just to show that I'm not going to beat up only on people on the right, I can also beat up on people on the left. We have a presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren, who said, though she's never taught antitrust, she says antitrust is nothing other than contracts, and she has taught contracts. Uh, and therefore, she wants to reframe antitrust entirely. So... Elizabeth Warren, on the other hand, says, I want to go back to the original meaning of antitrust. And the original meaning was, you know, multiple factors of which some of them were populist. Um, So it's fascinating that, you know, who's claiming originalism? Elizabeth Warren. Yet I seem to recall she voted against Neil Gorsuch. I I believe she also voted against that other guy, Brett Kavanaugh, who who we, we could describe as originalist. So either people on the left, Left and right are stupid, don't think they are, or they're simply completely insincere, um, and and they have their own goal in mind. 
And they also try to shape law and its interpretation based on their own internal goal, even in an area like antitrust. I have to make one quick point. And one reason to have voted against Neil Gorsuch is that his name was not Merrick Garland. But I will leave that to one side, um, because I think you're, you're right that there would have been opposition on the left to, uh, to the judicial philosophy. And that's just where we are now with, uh, with nominations. But um, is it just taken for granted, and I'm sure there's also analytical work on this, that a law which favors mom and pop against Walmart would not survive antitrust scrutiny? That's basically Robinson-Patman. Yeah, I mean... That is literally Robinson-Patman. Yeah. So, so, so the Supreme Court is actually quite crafty. So in some areas of antitrust law, the Supreme Court just outright, you know, says this doctrine is stupid. We overturn this doctrine. In other areas where they know where there's going to be political pushback and possible legislative intervention, they eviscerate the meaning of the statute, but don't go so far as to totally overrule it so that the legislature doesn't get worked up. And so Robinson-Patman is one of those statutes which has essentially been eviscerated, but not repealed. I don't understand, Christian, the nature of your question in the sense that, um, were you referring to a state statute and asking whether or not it would be preempted under the Antitrust Act? What did you Something, mean when you said I, so withstand in, antitrust scrutiny? Yeah, as I understood his description of the statute in the paper, it seemed as though it were taken for granted that a, a local statute or some other uh, regulation, which clearly had the effect of, and maybe was intended to favor mom and pop against Walmart. Well, actually, it's a national statute. Right. The Robinson-Patman Act. Yes, yes. I I mean... You're postulating a different kind of statute. I'm postulating a move by a local government or a state or maybe Congress. I I guess it wouldn't be Congress, but but a move to favor mom and pop against Walmart. And I imagine that would face antitrust scrutiny. Is that right? Uh, So that that gets us to a whole other set of antitrust doctrinal issues involving state action going to a California law that allowed for local raisin producers to cartelize in 1946. <laughs> this is the so famous called, case of Parker right. against Brown. Um, or some pro- yes. or and, some, yeah, you, and, and it yeah. turns out, actually, oddly enough, that uh, the, the shape of that doctrine in the Supreme Court is less eager to reach the conclusion that the state statute is preempted than you might otherwise predict. Well, so I, that was going right. to be my point. So, that, so let's not talk th- about. Well, it. this is a design. To, to <laughs> me, the, to me, the design Even problem is harder than it appears. Um, you know, you've actually had more antitrust Supreme Court cases involving the Parker Doctrine than I believe any single doctrine mm-hmm. since that time, um, including one just the other year involving Phoebe Putney, a uh, Georgia state action doctrine case involving uh, hospital merger. Yeah. And a state certificate that the, the, the lovely people of Georgia decided that they, they wanted to protect their local interests. So I so the only reason I, I raise this is because I think even if there is this goal of of achieving economic efficiency kind of at all costs, and that involves um, uh, favoring on a on a kind of per dispute basis, what looks like the more efficient result. It, it seems to me complex um, because I'm I'm not convinced that a law favoring or or, or even a, or even an economic transaction favoring locals over a Walmart is actually efficient if you look at it kind of broadly enough. To be clear, it's it's not, but it's not it's not on efficiency grounds. And I'd even take it a step further: uh, not allowing Walmart in or Amazon or whoever the low cost provider is, the dollar store. You know, these national chains 
what, what you're really hurting are the most vulnerable people in society, the ones for whom price really matters. Yeah, it, it seems to me really hard. And one, I only raise this because at one point I was thinking of, of having a of, of doing a paper on what I call creativity mandates um, and, and looking at these things which seem protectionist and at the expense of both the most vulnerable and outsiders as actually trying to maintain a vibrant local market. And, um, and so a city that is nothing but a hollowed out core with kind of national chains, you know, it's not clear to me that that will over time be as economically productive as one which maybe bore the brunt of slightly higher consumer prices in exchange for maintaining um, a, a more productive local capacity. And I, I, so I've not read a lot of um, economists writing on this, but it seems to me a much more complicated problem than looking at the immediate effect of lower prices by having stores which are basically warehouses for national chains. Um, and, and so I only raise this here because the the um, it seems like such a simp- such a simple, single-minded an achievable goal for law to push toward efficiency in each and every case, right, in a, of a particular kind. But when you get down to, you know, these um, uh, particular cases like this one, which seem obvious, like it seems like at the very least you're going to be kind of anti-protectionist, um, actually economically it strikes me as a much harder problem um, where different different kind of immediate goals only nebulously will serve even a long-term single-minded goal of efficiency. So to complicate it even further, the question is, is this an antitrust law problem or by favoring local interests, are we also introducing other areas of law? That is, if we have these other discrete preferences, are there other areas of law that might be more effective to getting that kind of outcome based on those different goals? Say, tax or other forms of government regulation that are not antitrust law specific. So Dan Danny let's let's let me end it this way by asking this question about your project and the way you analyze this as a rethinking of the efficiency of the common law. Is it Is this the, about the Atlanta Falcons or the or the Atlanta Hawks because <laughs> you know you're framing Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, it, you 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 can know with me it will never be about sports. Um, so uh, so here here is it. It's going to be about knitting. Get is ready this for it. a it's special? Be about is the efficiency of the common law as as you are looking at it with the uh, a platform uh, approach, looking at the role of modularity, the role of fragmentation, uh, the interaction between there being a bottom up. A role to play and a top-down role to play. W- would it? Would this be the way to look at the the instead of the efficiency of the common law, the exness of the common law for any value of X? That it that it's really about pursuing getting the common law to pursue a single goal, whether it's efficiency or anything else, fairness, um, uh, whatever it might be. Domination. Is this, a, in other words, is the efficiency analysis a special case of a more general analysis about singularity of goal? Yes. Uh, singularity of goal helps. I think it probably also helps that we have a better sense of what efficiency means, that there's less indeterminacy there relative to other goals. But But also, I think critical is the connection between that goal and individual self-interest, because a part of the story, right, is about, you know, how often litigants bring these things up, right? So you're not denying that all of the work that went before and the efficiency of the common law also applies to this platform story, 
right? I mean, oh, I agree with it entirely. Exactly. So the reason, so part of the reason that these things are litigated is because is because inefficient rules, you know, maybe do come up before the court more often on one of these various explanations, and and judges maybe do, you know, may, maybe they're. Their reason for is sometimes their actual the stated reasons are sometimes epiphenomenal and actually grounded in some kind of you know er notion of efficiency and so like maybe all those things are operating. So so maybe it would be sort of qualified. It would be it's it's a uh, the efficiency of the common law uh, exploration here is a special case of the Xness of the common law. Wherever X is a thing about uh, around which people will preferentially litigate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to be a thing that they that some people will care uh, m- enough more about to to attack Correct. the cases that don't yet achieve that goal. That's the most abstract formulation of the theory, I think. Well, right? I'm, and I'm all about abstraction. No, so. I mean, I, but, well, <laughs> as, as a mathematician, like I am too, like it, <laughs> the more abstract you are, the more you can explain, right? Uh, cool. Well, this is, it's it's a great paper. People should read it, even if they are not uh, uh, sort of teaching or writing in antitrust or in patent law or anything, because this is, it's, it raises lots of interesting uh, ideas, analogies, uh, uh, prospects for thinking about how, how law operates. So people should read it. And the book that follows, I assume, Danny. Yeah, or three books, maybe five. How many books, Danny? Whatever would be efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Danny's going to create a, pro- a platform for thinking about law in this way. Nice. <laughs> well, truly, thank you. This was great. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. I very much appreciate um, the platform to get my idea out to your readers. <laughs> cool. Well, we can't promise that it's efficient, but it at least exists. <laughs>